All right, hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Chris McIntyre. Chris is the uh, founder and CIO of the aptly named McIntyre Partnerships. Chris, how's it going? Uh, good, good. How are you? Doing good. Hey, well, uh, let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast, and that's by pitching you, my guest. You know, I was telling you before the show, it's kind of weird. We've been emailing for years, and this is the first time I'm actually putting a, uh, a face to an email address. But uh, Chris, we've been emailing for years. Chris is one of the sharpest investors I, I email with. Uh, you know, he runs the portfolio that I'd love to see investors run. I probably get a little bit too uh, too distracted to run this at all times, but you know, it's five to seven names, very concentrated, good work, differentiated view, and, and I just love that. So I've enjoyed talking to you over the years, and uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Well, hey, that pitch out the way, uh, let's just turn to the stock we're going to talk about. This is a stock, you know, I've been following them for several months. There's a lot of background here. I know they were pretty popular on Finchwit, maybe a little bit because I was posting on them. But uh, the stock is GTX. We'll just give it a quick disclaimer. They just emerged from bankruptcy. The stock is still pretty thinly traded. Both Chris and I have positions in GTX. So everybody should keep all of that in mind. Positions, recent bankruptcy, decently liquid stock. Uh, But with that disclaimer out the way, Chris, I'll top it over to you. What's going on with GTX and why are you so interested in them? Yeah, so um, I like to always break and like explain. I always split my like kind of stock pitches between like the long term stuff, which we can definitely talk about, like the business where it's going over the years, and then I also just like to kind of start with like a like you know like trader talk. Where's the stock kind of what's the setup a little bit? Love it. Um, so the basic setup, yeah, is it's um, the pitch is it's a recently reorganized company, um, and it's actually um, a high-growing, high-quality business that basically re-emerged from a non-fundamental bankruptcy, meaning like they they run out of money, and we can talk about that later. But um, so it went through this non-fundamental bankruptcy, and after a period of like yelling and fighting, which I know you've covered a bit of, um, the stocks re-emerged, and basically it is an auto supplier trading, I think, roughly five times this year's free cash flow, four times next. Um, The clearest comp is BorgWarner, trades 13 and 11 times. They have similar leverage. They have similar long-term worries about, you know, internal combustion engines versus battery electric. Um, and so I really think it's basically getting along this high-quality company that went through this non-fundamental, very fundamental event. Um, and you're basically just getting a chance to buy it before everyone else figures out that it should really be trading a lot higher than it is. Um, and so that is a very simple, short kind of trader talk pitch. Um, it's a pretty clean balance sheet now. It's a pretty clean business. And yeah. No, that's a perfect that's a perfect background, a perfect overview. Uh, and I, I've got you know, look. I've been following them. I, there's, I think people are going to guess some of the pushbacks I'm going to have, but we'll get to the pushbacks in a second. But I guess let's just take a, another step step back. You know, you mentioned Borg Warner as a cop, but what particularly does GTX do? And you know, how how do you look at this business? Because I do think there's been a little misperceptions on probably the business and how cyclical it is as well. Sure. Yeah. So the business is turbochargers. Um, and it's actually, um, it's one of the deepest moated. One of the reasons I like it so much is it's really like we talk about moats and what they are, but it really has like one of the biggest moats like I've ever seen a company really have. Um, they have about 35% share of the turbocharger market. Um, they and Borg Warner basically share a duopoly with roughly 70% combined share. And then there's some smaller Asian competitors that actually chase after them. But one of the things I always like to point out when talking about what they do um, what it is, is it's, a, it's an auto um, supplier. And so it's a part of an engine. Um, 
And so what actually it is, uh, there's a couple that chase after them. And so they're like a fast follower market. So there's two leaders who basically are like several years ahead in R&D. And then there are smaller Asian competitors who try to like knock them off and, you know, a couple of years later come to market with a thing. But it, they have basically the highest margins of any like non-software uh, auto supplier. I mean, among the highest, at least maybe there's a niche product here or there, but like they're very high margins. They're basically an 18% EBITDA margin, um, something like a 15 plus percent EBITDA minus CapEx margin, average auto supply margins, six, 7% with 3% price downs, versus these guys are at 15 plus with 1% price downs. Um, and one of the things I also like to point out to people is that Bosch and Mall, which are basically two of the largest auto suppliers in the world, in the late 2000s, they actually tried to get into this business invested several hundred million in startup expenses, 10 years, complete buy-in from the OEMs trying to break this duopoly, and they gave up. Um, they actually sold it for, you know, almost basically cost the Chinese private equity a couple of years ago. And so we'll get into the product in a second, but it really is like one of these like great, excellent businesses. If it weren't for eventually the threat of battery electrics, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, I would say it's one of the best companies I've ever analyzed. Um, and so what they make are turbochargers, which are basically Conceptually, it came out of Honeywell originally, um, and they're sort of basically, they're basically mini jet engines. Like, you know, like when you look at a plane and the jet engine in the front has the turbine that spins, exactly the same thing, except it blows, it takes the air that comes out of the engine and blows it back into the engine. And so that causes more power. And so a lot of people historically think about turbochargers as like, you know, like Fast and the Furious, you know, racing down the highway, turn on the turbo, nitro, whatever, you know. Instant first thing I thought when you mentioned yeah. when we started looking at these for sure. Yeah. So that's like what turbocharger means to me before I knew about the business. But the flip side of that is if you want to also increase gas mileage, right? You're taking the air that's coming out of the car and has force and isn't going anywhere, it's going out the muffler. And you're pushing it back in the engine. So you're conserving power in that way. And what it does is basically they're a big play on hybrids and like fuel efficiency, because what you can do is you can go from a three liter engine to a two liter engine. But when that happens, you lose a lot of power. And then what you do is you add a turbo to jam the air back in there and you get your speed back up. And that way you have 55 miles an hour, uh, 55 miles uh, per gallon. And you don't take 15 seconds to get to the 60 miles an hour, the way like a one and a half liter engine, like some of these turbos or some of the hybrids currently have um, would have without turbocharging and some of the other powertrain electronics that they're adding to it. Um, so it's really just this big play, taking a step back, it's kind of a big play on CO2 efficiency in cars. And so 47% of all cars in the world were turbocharged. Um, not all of the park, just all of the like new cars made every year were turbocharged in uh, 2017. And now it's like 51, 52 in 2023, it should be like 53%. And so it's just a very clear, um, line of sight on that growth. And the other thing that's really, really interesting about Garrett and about turbos thus, um, is they're really designed into the cars and they're designed in years in advance. Like you're not, no car is going anywhere without the engine, right? It's just a very basic concept, right? Um, and they designed the engine a couple of years in advance. And basically Garrett bids on these contracts five years, four years, three years before they actually come to market. And once it's designed into the car, I mean, it's literally, you have to like design it into the engine, right? It's, you can't just like swap them out. Um, and so they just have like a really sticky, high visibility model. And they're selling into a cyclical market, um, auto. But the thing that they're selling is like, they know that, you know, the Mercedes AMG, you know, 
GLC, whatever exactly it is, like they know three years in advance, they're like, all right, you've won the contract and every single one of them will have it. And so they actually, by they're 35% of a market that's 50%, roughly speaking, of the overall car market, right? So they're diversified across geography, they're diversified across OEM, they're diversified across model. And so really the key variable is auto sales. It's not, if the F-150 doesn't launch well this year, it's not like their earnings numbers go down 30% or something like that, like certain other auto suppliers might. And so it, it's really this like sticky, high barrier to entry, you know, growth story, frankly, because, you know, CO2 efficiencies are going up and that's the law. And we can talk about battery electric, but it's currently not a nearly large enough part of the market to really move the needle. And so they just kind of have to go to like these hybrid fuel trains. Or power well, trains. I, I'm a little pissed because you front ran all of my questions, oh. all my fundamental questions with your answer. But ju- just to sum up, make sure. And so that listeners think I'm smart when I'm summing all this up and everything. But uh, I, I think the, the basics of the investment thesis here is Hey, these guys have, they should have years of pretty good visibility because if you've ever worked with a uh, a car manufacturer, and this is not unique to them, but car manufacturers, as you said, they build for their platforms years in advance of making the cars. And once you get in, you know, I, Sirius XM is a popular company along Finchwit because of Malone's investment. And they say, look, we'd love to be in every car we can. But unfortunately, if you bid today, you're bidding to get into the 2024 and 2025 models. It takes three or four mm-hmm. years. For these guys, they bid, they get into an engine, it's three or four years in advance, they'll be locked on that platform for five or seven years, however long it lasts. It's a duopoly, as you said, them and Berg Warner control the, you know, 70-ish percent of the market. So duopoly with lock-in and long-term visibility, you can buy those three together and that's the recipe for a good business. Is that a pretty good summary? Yeah. And I would even like, a lot of auto supply has like a duopoly characteristic, right? Like let's say seating. Um, But the thing that's, even better, I would say, than most of auto supplies duopoly kind of thing is like the way I pitch it is like, like if you and me have, take $50 million, we will be able to figure out how to make a car seat, right? Like I, I, I'm not saying we can deliver it just in time on a scale of millions of units, you know, with, you know, 10 days notice between like the order to delivering it anywhere in the world. Like that's a very different, difficult thing, but we will figure out how to make one. Like turbochargers, the turbine, so like the thing you see in the front of the jet engine it's much smaller obviously uh it spins at like 150,000 rotations a minute and the distance between the turbine and like the wall of the turbo sometimes is like a seventh of a human hair like we're not you're not just getting into this business you can't throw money at it you need years of know-how and so like a lot of the times you see an auto supply is like there's a one and a two but like they keep the OEMs do a good job of keeping a three or a four on the margins to like make sure that like the one and two don't get enough size and run away with price, you know? And so they're always like, oh, we'll just give it to your competitor. And you're like, no, 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 we'll do it at a, you know, 20 gross margin instead of a 25, right? Um, that's really not the case here. It's really just Borg and Garrett that can make the first gen stuff. And so like, there's only two companies bidding on these. And so it's a little bit, I, I would just argue it's even better than most duopoly auto supply things. I, I do not disagree with you. Oh, is that on my end? Okay. I do not disagree with you in any way, shape, or form, but but let me provide some foot pushback. You know, I we'll talk about the bankruptcy and why why now the bankruptcy happened in a second, but there was a bankruptcy, and in the bankruptcy, there was uh, you know, as you do in a bankruptcy, they ran an auction, right? And the auction resulted in uh initially KPS KPS, a private equity firm, bid 2.1 billion. They walked up to 2.6 and maybe walked up a little higher. There was Center Bridge, the party that ultimately won with a recap bid that I think 
think valued the company around $3 billion. And mm-hmm. then there was a, a kind of equity holder committee that tried to get a bid together. I think that failed at the one-yard line. But you know what? Mm-hmm. there were three bids in the 2.6 to $3 billion range is what I'd say. And when I look at that and I say, you know, EBITDA here, I, I think you and I think in the short term, in the medium term, probably can get to around 500 million. So this is a six times EBITDA business. You can correct me if I'm saying anything this wrong in a second. But, uh, you know, when, when I look at those numbers, I say, oh, OK, like, cool. You had a, a business that goes for six times EBITDA. Like it, it went through bankruptcy, ran a process, and these were the best bids it can get. Like those numbers aren't exactly jumping off the page to me as this is a really good business. So, so how would you kind of respond to that? Um, so the simplest, so how much do you want to talk about like the bankruptcy process? We can talk about it, but it kind of explains how the bids came in, but I don't know how specific you want to be. Let's go to the bankruptcy process in one second. Let's just stick on that, that kind of valuation focus I I had for a second, and then we'll go to the bankruptcy. Yeah. So I would say, so two things on the valuation focus. Um, one is I think people, they filed at a time when auto supply was still in question. And so, you know, you were going to lockdowns, what are things going to look like? And for a variety of reasons, I think Garrett was management, Garrett management, as we're talking about bankruptcy process, you're very specific on who you're talking about, but Garrett management um, was very conservative on their forward guidance. And so I think something, so for instance, the first pushback I would have is like the $500 million number where um, they are already much ahead of all of auto supply. Basically, they're already at like record profits. So they're actually breaking up to new highs. And so if you just take their Q1 number, where they did about 176 million in EBITDA, and you annualize it, you're already at roughly a 700 million pace. And so, like the numbers from when they filed, that many people I think were looking at through the process are clearly wrong, and they're coming in well ahead of them. Um, there, and the second thing I would push, uh, I was just on the numbers. I remember one of the filings was like, "Hey, here's our 2021 projection quarter by quarter," and they had just completed quarter one, and there was like a footnote that said like, "Oh, our 2021 projection, like." We we smashed the quarter one estimates. We're we're so far ahead of it; it's ridiculous. But we're keeping our 2021 estimates. And I read that I was like, "Wait, what? What?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're running a process. They're dealing with lenders. You know, there's only downside to overstating your number to a lender. So they just, I think, for a variety of reasons, are just quite conservative. Um, and they've been coming in well ahead of what I think some people might have looked at it and heard previous, you know, your podcaster took a shot at it in the bankruptcy court. Um, they're coming in well ahead, which I think is an underestimated part of the story. If you're thinking about like a trading perspective on what is actually playing out in the market right now. Um, and then the second pushback I would do is there are EBITDA minus CapEx is like 15. And like most auto supply, when someone throws like the 6X, they're at like a seven, eight, nine. And so they're actually just converting way more free cash flow. They also have a little extra. Uh, they have like an advantage tax rate. They're like actually a Swiss-based company. Uh, engine design really happens before battery electric almost entirely in Europe. And so they're just actually a Swiss company. It's actually quite difficult to get a Swiss tax rate. You can't just pop down and try to apply for it. It's not like certain other countries. Like, so they actually have an even better tax rate. And so like they have higher margins and lower taxes. And so like the free cash flow conversion from comping them on EV to EBITDA to say Borg Warner, like they're converting at a much higher rate because Borg has this business just like them, but then they have a bunch of other lower margin businesses that blend down their overall um, EBITDA conversion. So I think those would be the two pushbacks on just a straight EBD EBITDA calculation, why I think it's a little bit unfair to get. No, that's great. And I'll, we'll turn to the bankruptcy in one second. I'll just interject mm-hmm. one more thing here. Because the thing I've struggled the most with it is it, 
with it is I look at it and I say, oh, I think this is cheap. I, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to blow away numbers. And aside from you, me and a couple other people, I don't think people are talking about, hey, you know, the 2021, like that you could probably cut out Q4 and they might hit their 2021 yeah. numbers at this point. Um, so I, I think it's super cheap, but the the like kind of incentive driven event investor in me looks at it and says, well, three parties shopped it. This was the best bid. You know, I do think uh, the controlling group, uh, the Oak Tree group that ended up taking this, they really wanted it. But I look at it and say they won with the best bid. And right now, if you're buying the common stock because of the way that prefs work and everything, you're probably paying the topping price to the best bid. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of look at it and say, is there that much upside here? But um, Mm -hmm. uh, that's just the event investor in me because I think the numbers speak for themselves. Let's turn. The first pushback anybody's going to say when they look at this, they're going to say, "You're you guys are here saying it's a good business. You guys are out here saying they've got years of visibility. They went bankrupt last year. So what happened with the bankruptcy?" So I I, I like to pitch it by taking a step back and saying that there's basically three ways reasons a company files for bankruptcy. Right. Um, the first is they can't make their interest payments. The second is they can't. Um, uh, refinance their debt when it's due, either because they tripped a covenant or because whatever's happening, like the credit markets are not open to this company. And then there's option number three, which is contingent liabilities, which is what there is. But number one and two are basically what most people think of when someone files for bankruptcy, right? It's like, we ran out of money. We don't have any more money. We're bankrupt, right? That's like what it means. Um, and so, you know, I've done distressed debt many years. Um, you can make money in it. There's a whole business out there trying to make money in that. You have to be a quib for the most part, which is a different thing. But uh, the problem with those bankruptcies is, look, these are all, you're almost always screening for bad companies, right? There's a, bad companies are idiotic management. Like those, that's how you end up in bankruptcy, right? Um, with certain rare exceptions. Um, the third one, which is contingent liabilities, like the filing has nothing really to do with the business. So they filed because they had a disagreement with Honeywell about some liabilities that were put under the company when it was spun out of Honeywell. But the actual liability that we're discussing is their asbestos liability, which is related to a company called Benedict's, which is not even Garrett. It's just something else that was in Allied Signal when it was acquired in the late 90s. The point is like, they stopped making these brake pads in like 1982. Like it has nothing to do with the business. It literally is older. I'm not that old, but I I hope I don't, not that old. Uh, But like it's before I was born. and so it just has absolutely nothing to really do with Garrett's fundamental business, which I think is like the interesting thing about Garrett specifically and contingent liability bankruptcies in general, asbestos, um, some famous distressed debt trades from like the early 2000s where certain now famous investors bought a ton of yep. like equity in certain companies. Um, yep. And then, you know, there's um, the wildfire fires in California, which you can argue maybe is more ongoing, but like certainly like whether or not like there's a legal liability from wildfires not related to whether or not someone uses a lamp in Los Angeles. Um, and so it's really, you know, it's a bankruptcy. So it's lumped in and like, oh, it's a bankruptcy. It's probably a crap company. And you're like, no, this bankruptcy has absolutely nothing to do with its current operations. Uh, they're, they're totally different. They just have nothing to do with each other, which I think is a real opportunity to get, you know, an actually very good company that actually is going through this process. Um, I don't know if you want to interject there or. No, that's great. So I guess the, the summary there would just be, 
GTX spun out of Honeywell at the time. And Honeywell did this with another company too. Honeywell spun them out. And part of this spun out was some weird financial engineering where Honeywell said, hey, we've got these legacy liabilities that have nothing to do with you. But as part of the spin out, you take you take these liabilities, pay them back. And it was actually structured in a really weird way where it was a liability for the company, but it wasn't tax deductible. It was strange. But Garrett, in 2020, they looked at it and said, hey, if we file for bankruptcy, we think we can take a huge haircut to these contingent liabilities. So mm-hmm. is that kind of putting it correctly? Yeah, I think you can talk about what exactly went. I think that's definitely putting it correctly. You talk about what exactly went down between Garrett and Honeywell. But yeah, basically by filing for bankruptcy, you were forcing someone to settle. Um, we can like drag out a fight in court for many, many years, right? But like when you hit a bankruptcy court, you know, the way it works in bankruptcy is like, if you have debt, you show up and you're like, I gave them a billion dollars. I want my billion dollars back. If they don't give me my billion dollars. I'm going to be a creditor. And then there's a whole thing. Um, but like the way these liabilities were structured, they're basically an indemnity. indemnity. Um, and so like, actually they're like, Garrett's not on trial for the asbestos. Honeywell is on trial. And then Garrett's indemnifying Honeywell. And so the thing is, when you file for bankruptcy, you say the contract is worthless. And so like, Honeywell has to accept whatever the bankruptcy court puts on the contract or they accept zero. And so like you basically you're forcing someone to settle rather yeah. than like dragging it out with years of appeals and you know all this kind of stuff. And so yeah, they took the route of forcing Honeywell to the table. Maybe we could have come to a conclusion without going through a $400 million bankruptcy. Um, but that's how it went. Um, and so yeah, that's basically it. Perfect. So I, I think that's a great overview of the uh I, I think that's a great overview of the ban- bankruptcy. We probably don't need to talk about why they went bankrupt into bankruptcy court anymore. It pro- I, I think both you and I would say the whole thing could have been handled better, but they went into bankruptcy and then they run an auction. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was saying my worry is the auction didn't produce results that were a lot higher. And I think mm-hmm. if you think the stocks are going to work, you, you need the auction results that have been wrong. This to be a lot higher. So maybe we can talk about the auction process for a second and kind of why you think that might not have yielded full value for Garrett versus what you're seeing today. Sure. So the sort of like the critical part of like the auction is, well, what is Honeywell going to get? Because essentially, right, like if you're coming in as a third party bidder, right? So you're just. Can I? And the reason that's critical is, you know, KPS, who was the original bidder, their final bid was about 2.6 billion and Honeywell was owed about, what was it? 1.5 billion, right? So. 2.6 2.6 billion versus 1.5 billion. The reason you say what is Honeywell is going to get is because they were owed so much money that mm-hmm. hair, the haircut on that side was the most critical thing to this bankruptcy. Yeah, it's basically, it's really, I think actually KPS's final bit, I think it's more like 2.9 something, just just the apples, yep, yep. The apples that are whatever I'm looking for. Um, yeah, so it's just like a huge part of it. And it's also like the, the reason, so basically what happened is through the process, um, there were a bunch of different recap proposals, some talked about in court, some officially filed in court, whatever, right? Like a lot of people, and also I'm sure plenty have come to stress funds poked on the sides that we don't really, never got filed, never really talked about, but I'm sure someone asked Honeywell what they want for it and, you know, we'll write you a check kind of stuff. Um, the reason it's critical is what happened is Center Bridge and Oak Tree, who ended up winning, um, basically went out and locked up, let's say, um, Honeywell basically into this like sort of like settlement. Um, and like the bankruptcy judge took a dim view of it very publicly, you know, kind of like challenged it and said, like, how is this not anti-competitive? You know, very much said it. But what it really does is the problem is so say you're a separate private equity fund, right? You're, you know, 
Let's not use an actual one, I guess. So your ABC private equity fund, right? And you're like, you know, I think this could be worth like, I think if I buy this for three and a half billion, numbers could come in better. Um, you know, we could see a way to get over this sort of thing, right? The problem is you need Honeywell to settle. And Honeywell has agreed only to settle with Center Bridge and Oak Tree. So I don't have that settlement. So then I have to run the risk of like, I have to overbid. So I have to beat Center Bridge and Oak Tree, which are two very large, well-funded, well-respected private equity hedge fund, whatever exactly you want to think of them. So I have to beat two of my large liquid competitors, not liquid that way, but having liquid lots of money competitors. And then I don't have a settlement with Honeywell. So I don't actually know what I'm buying. Yep. Right. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm paying three and a half billion and I'm buying a billion in equity or if I'm buying 200 million in equity on top of it, or maybe I'm actually not going to win. And they're going to say Honeywell is doing more than that. And so I'm, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a really complicated thing. And so what it did basically is it, and the judge, you could just, I guess there will be a transcript at some point available, I believe. Um, but if you've actually listened into the hearings, right, like he was very much like, you know, it's not just my opinion that this is anti-competitive. It's it's sort of anti-competitive. And so it's not a real go shop period because basically within a month of filing, it looked pretty obvious that the equity was going to be, you can see it trade up, right? Um, it looked like obviously it was going to stay listed, right? Like multiple parties agreed to keep it out there. And so it's sort of like, so now you have to bid higher for the, and it just made it, not, in my opinion, a fully real auction. And I would point out that outside of KPS, all of the other bids were like people who are shareholders bidding to recap the company that were made public in like, you know, Al Creek had one with the Moorlander, Jeffries Group, OWJ. Um, and so it's not, it was a somewhat intentionally not competitive auction. And I think yes. that's a really critical detailed thesis because it's like, they're like, well, that's the market clearing price. That's what we got. And it was like, with the caveat that the most important thing was locked in by one of the bidders who has no incentive to gun it because they think they've locked in the most important detail. And so they're going to win no matter what, which is actually what happened. Um, so I think it's it's a little bit different. That's perfect. That's perfect. And, and let me move to, uh, you know, I, I think the next thing, so Center Bridge and Oak Tree, and I'll just do a, a quick thing, but, you know, they locked in Honeywell. And then they they structured the way that the company basically eventually emerged, and they they had to tweak it around the edges because there was a competitive shareholder group that forced that basically forced them to. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I would say the way they emerged was with a rights offering that highly highly adva- advantaged the Center Bridge Oak Tree Group, right? Mm-hmm. So w- when I go through those two, you know, now the companies emerged, but they emerged with uh, Center Bridge and Oak Tree back then. Center Bridge and Oak Tree owned the majority of the common equity; they owned the vast majority of the preferreds at this point. So. Uh, we can talk how we value it and everything, but I think the biggest risk that I'm worried about, aside from being wrong on the valuation right now, would be, hey, Center Bridge and Oak Tree, they're private equity firms. They are here to make money for themselves. And I think we're kind of aligned because we own the same securities at this point. But at the same time, the bankruptcy process showed that they have no qualms taking a knife and shoving it into minority shareholders' kidneys because that's pretty much what they did the entire time through this process. So mm-hmm. how do you think about kind of those controlling shareholders? So I think like, you know, they're the new money investors in a bankruptcy process and they own, the way it works is they own 4.9% roughly each of the company, like one share shy of 5%, not literally, but in the ballpark. Um, and then they got to put in the recap. So they mainly own the PREF. Um, and so when you, I don't want to talk, we can talk about the PREF, but like the PREF is like super liquid right now. It will be listed later, but so you can think a couple months out, but there's going to be some restrictions on who can actually buy the PREF now, but we'll go away in July. The way I think about it is like, 
Yeah, you got to think about what they own. And there are certain ways that they can maybe advantage their piece of what they own versus your piece. But um, ultimately, they still own upside from five and a quarter on the pref and their shares, right? Like that is the big way that these guys are going to get paid. Um, there's way too many invited in like involved third-party shareholders who are not center bridge and oak tree who also own a piece of it for, I think like, you know, if they owned 80% of it, I think I would be a lot more like, all right, I'm going to own 1% or, you know, I'll own 3% of the available 20% or something like that. And you're like, okay, I, you know, they can, there's certain things they could do. They could put like a private equity style in theory. They could put like a private equity style, like, you know, management fee or something like that, like sweep out 3% of the cash to themselves, you know, there's sort of like things you could do, but there's so many other funds involved who are also big, you know, like you can't push them around quite as much. It's a pretty well-trafficked name. Like I think one of the interesting things about it is, is if you look at the shareholder list, it's like a, for lack of a better phrase, like a who's who of distressed debt investing have all shown up as shareholders and or bidders for the entire company, which might hint potentially at why that there might be a value there. Like it feels unlikely that Bell possess a, Cyrus Boylander, Centerbridge and Oak Tree all are incompetent and they're all wildly off that they all thought this thing was interesting, you know. So I think that's maybe a little bit of a a bullish argument. But I think the the thing to be to get comfort in is like, I don't think you really have a high likelihood of if they were to come out like the way that I think they would get screwed now is they would do we'll bid seven dollars to the rest of the equity. Um and so like that would in some ways be bad or they could come out with a low ball bid, but then there's still going to be majority minority shareholders. So you still have to get that and you'd still have to run a real auction. And this time it's not quite as, you can't just, you know, you're, it wouldn't be as lopsided as sometimes new money injections in bankruptcy are. I think new money injections in bankruptcy are particularly sometimes lopsided. There's all kinds of horror stories. You can find all sorts of smart guys screaming on the courthouse steps that their, their bond's worth more than they're getting. And they still end up getting the price that was originally agreed upon versus it's a different thing with a publicly listed company. And I'd also point that they own so much of this and this is such a big bet for them. Like, and it's also like, okay, like, are you really going to get, does Santa Bridge and Oak Tree really think they're going to screw Valpost? You know, like who owns, I don't know exactly how the proration came out for their, um, the backstop on the, the one, the prefe. But like, do you really feel like how much you're really going to get chasing out retail accounts when 80% of this is now owned by a bunch of funds who are quite knowledgeable, you know, at this point and do know what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, the ugly part of this business sometimes is when people might take advantage of like, you know, retail accounts and like a, a transaction that's unnecessarily complicated sometimes. Right. Versus now it's like, there's really not that much left versus like the value of the public listing. And if this does well, they get to put, you know, they can sell their stock in the public market. They don't have to do a private transaction. So it, it's, I think we're actually pretty well aligned there. And the the other thing I think the 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 flip side of it too though is um I don't know if you had a comment or am I cutting you off or please continue. I'm yeah, yeah. The, the flip side of it when you're dealing with like, all right, so we have like a big controlling shareholder, right? And you're really worried that they won't treat you fairly. But the other flip side of it is look, this is a company that inevitably in the next 20 years, let's say, I think their core business will be in secular decline. But it's very cash generated right now. And in my opinion, stock is very cheap right now. And so the, one of the critical things is like capital allocation, right? Um, like what, what's going to happen to the cash, right? Um, and I think having a bunch of like skilled value guys who are pretty intelligent and have experience running deal processes basically with like running the show on the capital allocation front 
Um, I think that's a very material positive. And so I think more than I would think an average stock that trades an average market multiple with a controlling shareholder I don't necessarily trust. Like, I mean, like that's not great, but when something's trading five and four times free cash flow, having a skilled capital allocator makes a huge potential discount uh, difference on your eventual outcome. Um, I, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. When you've got, so, when you've got something that's a, a uh, can you hear me okay, by the way? I keep hearing a little bit. Okay, cut out a little bit, but now it's fine. I, I just couldn't agree with you more. You know, when you've got something that it's the classic, oh, this is trading for a 10% free cash flow to equity multiple. You know, I my biggest mistakes in my career have generally been, uh, hey, this trade's really cheap, but I kind of don't trust the management team. And then guess what? The management team takes all the money for themselves. And like here, it, it's going to be tough for them to take all the money for themselves. At this point, I think you're aligned. And the most important thing is this is a business that generates a lot of cash flow. And because you're probably aligned, they're not going to go do a stupid diversification or probably won't. If they do an acquisition, it's going to be the sharpest guys in the room at least blessed it. And uh, yeah. more. And if they don't do an acquisition, they're not going to let that cash sit on their balance sheet. They're going to be putting it to work by giving it back to shareholders because they want to juice that RR. So I just love that you've got a, an investor who is in a semi-controlled position. They're focused on maximizing shareholder value. They, are, they make their living making money and you're probably on their side. So I, I agree with you there. Let me ask about a uh, management team uh, because you know I, I think both you and I were are a little critical of the process that resulted in the bankruptcy. I think you and I would probably be a little critical of the initial KPS deal, the way they structured and joined the Center Bridge deal, all that. So you know I, I do look at this and say, okay, you've got a management team that bungled a uh, bungled a bankruptcy filing. They've been running this for years. Like, why should we trust that this is the team we want to bet on? So like, I think you can criticize a lot how things went down and like the way you know it certainly wasn't the dream um as an investor in the company before the filing um but through the process i'll say like it still ended up you know basically if you what ultimately happened basically is like you took a 1.4 billion dollar liability to honeywell or 1.5 or whatever exactly it was um at like a nine percent or at a seven percent discount rate called 900 million dollars and so basically they got 900 million dollars and we equitized it at a 20 percent discount to where the stock was trading the day before they said that they were thinking about filing um and so you're like it's not all that bad like it would have been better to get fully to participate in the offering right it would have been better to not you know i mean there's certain things that could have gone better um but i think ultimately it didn't work out all that poorly um and i think certainly if you are sort of knowledgeable and traded it well, I think it could have worked out pretty well. Um, as I'm sure many listeners of the podcast or that follow you might have figured out. Not investment advice, but I suspect that a couple might have. Yeah, yeah. Some people might have done all right on that. Um, but look, it, it's sort of like one of these things that happened, and I don't really like exactly all the stuff that went down, but I also don't think it's it's not as it's not like egregious, you know, and then the way that I don't think it personally that it's egregious in the way it finally went down. And then beyond that, they're actually really great operators. They have like extremely good reputations. Um, the, the business, when it was like um, part of Honeywell, consistently won like, you know, like best operating subdivision or what, you know, like they got like the gold star at the kind of thing. I don't work at a large company, so I don't really know how these things exactly work or how they sound. But, you know, they're, they're quite good on operations. They keep a, a lean um corporate structure like the actual if you look at like the sg neighbor sales and all that kind of stuff it's it's really quite lean up top um and they pretty much with the rare exception with the exception basically like the auto downturn which is not like they created covid um it's a 
best of my knowledge. Um, they do have a plant in Wuhan. Uh, but they, uh, you know, they were like really good operators. I don't really think, but Center Bridge and Ocher are basically in charge anyway. So it's like, you know, if they're like guys who are going to give themselves too big of an options package, I've got a nice options package here. Um, eh, it's it's do, not as, yeah. Do you know where, where do their options strike? I don't remember. I don't remember looking at I their don't options. No, if it's public or not, I assume probably they're going to strike at five twenty five. Um, okay. CEO actually bought stock this week. Um, oh, I hadn't seen that. My form four. Yeah. So. It's a it's a four four filing. There's maybe some. I, I asked the company. I haven't heard back. There's maybe something around the contract, but I think it's basically just straight up public market buy. Um, yeah. Cool. But, well, uh, no, I look. I, I think that's good. Yeah, it looks like a straight up public market buy. I'm kind of looking at the edge of my interest. Very interesting. Uh, let Let's talk about. So, I think we've covered the bankruptcy process at this point. Is there anything on the bankruptcy process that you think we should go back and and hit real quick? Um. No, I don't think there's anything. Okay. So, so bankruptcy process in the past, passed in the past. They emerged in the past month. Uh, they emerged through it was a big, uh, a big Series A preferred convertible preferred uh, offering that they did that kind of funded their whole bankruptcy. They just got that done. The preferreds, I don't think they're trading yet. Hopefully, they will at some point in the future. But as we talk, it is uh, what is today? It is Friday. May 14th, the stock is trading for about $6 per share. So can we talk for a second about valuation? And I know a lot of people have had questions on the convertible preferred A's, which will eventually trade versus the common. So uh, let's just talk overall valuation and then maybe how you look at the convertible preferreds versus the common. Sure. So I think the easiest way to think about it is, and I know it's it sort of, it comes out with a little bit of a funky structure, um, not that funky of a structure, but like a little bit. Um, the easiest way to think about it is to just convert the preferred fully and then think about free cash flow per share on a fully diluted share, share base. Um, and the reason I say it's the easiest is right now it has the capital structures, it's a term loan, there's a pref A, which is what the recap is. I call it an equity recap, but it's really what you recapped it via the pref, which is convertible at 525 a share about 1.3 billion. Um, and then they have a pref B, which is like basically Honeywell got $375 million last Friday, two Fridays ago or whatever. Um, and then they get this $584 million of present value. It has like 835 is the actual book value, but it's paid out over such a long period of time at a seven and a quarter discount rate. It's more like 584 million. And uh, uh, Garrett has the right to prepay it at a seven and a quarter rate whenever they deem. They can also prepay the first 184 million Without if they prepay more than 184 million, they have to basically like Honeywell can be like, you have to give me all the money, but they can prepay the first 184. So if you think about like the simple capital structure um, is the term loan, the pref A for 1.3 and 1.25, um, opposite, not respectively, the opposite of respect. Um, and then there's the Honeywell uh, pref B for 584, and then there's 65 million shares outstanding. Um, and so I know it can be tempting to do a run like an EV to EBITDA. Like sort of calculation across this, but it runs into this sort of like somewhat ridiculous thing where like if you assume any kind of multiple on EV to EBITDA, particularly on a one or two year out number, you end up with saying like the shares are worth like, you know, if you thought it was worth, say they're going to do 800 million in EBITDA, 700 million in EBITDA minus CapEx, which I think is a totally reasonable number by 2023, let's say. Um, you know, if you throw like a seven times EBITDA multiple on that or something like that, um, you know, seven times EBITDA minus CapEx, which I think for any business is not already in like negative revenue growth territory. At that point, I think they'll be growing revenues double digits. 
um, you would be coming up if you try to do this EVD, but dot calculation, you'll come up with some sort of math where you're like, well, I think the equity is worth like $28 a share, but then it's going to get diluted at 525. So it's sort of a little bit of a, it doesn't really fully make sense. Um, and then the second reason I think is that is, look, the whole structure is basically designed to collapse at 600 million in EBITDA. So the company basically, originally we talked about like how their guidance is way too low to what the business looks like now. And so they were like, look, by 2023, we should be doing 600 million in EBITDA. And so Honeywell has a put option when the company hits a $600 million trailing 12 month EBITDA two quarters in a row, they have the right to be like, give me my money back now at that seven and a quarter discount rate versus 585 current present value. Um, so there's the put option. And then two is like the actual pref A force converts at 600 million in trailing EBITDA. Uh, and, um, to, and uh, the, the stock price has to be 50% above the strike, which is like 775, 780, something like that. Um, but it's like, it's designed to force convert, right? And so the calculus or calculations they give to the court are like, here's what we think it'll be worth. It'll convert. And that's all 313 million trades on sale. But the thing is like, they're already way above that now. Like they're already at like $600, $700 million run rate. And like they grew, you know, their sales are 19% above Q1 2019. Auto industry is down 13 versus Q1 on 19 right now. And you're like, we're already above this rate. And so the thing is like, either Honeywell is going to force push capital. They're going to be like, we want our money back. Or I think even without them asking for asking for their money back, like they're just going to refi this loan. They're going to kick off so much cash. They could should exit with something like 500 million, let's say in cash on the balance sheet. I think it might be more than that. Um, and then they'll also like, they'll probably generate another 400 million cash by year end. Like, I think there's just a very good chance like they either refi it or pay it down with cash on hand or whatever exactly they're going to do like honeywell is going to go away certainly within two years if not by like the fall um and so once that actually happens then you'll have just basically the common shares which would be you know 20 for whatever 65 over 313 is right now um and so you have the common shares will be about 20 percent of the equity and the rest with the pref a which will be listed and traded and so i think we could talk about pref versus equity but in relatively short order, it will be very obvious that the thing I think will be forced converted. Um, it'll take two years for the, the pref A has to exist for two years. Um, you as a holder have the right to collect those dividends for two years before the automatic conversion kicks in. Um, but I think it's a, it looks a little odd, but it should be cleaned up pretty quickly because they just have way more cash and there's no reason to pay seven and a quarter when you could probably refi it at three um, or four. Um, so I just think it's a much simpler structure. Cool. So let me let me break this down and, and try to simplify a little bit. So uh, you know, I think the I, I think the and I agree the whole the whole structure was di- designed to collapse and really simplify when the company got to six hundred million EBITDA. Whether they hit this this year or two years from now, we can debate. But if I just said okay, the company the the target the baseline target is six hundred million EBITDA. The shares today trade for six dollars per share. What's the company's EV at six dollars per share right now? It should if you assume all the prefs just convert. Okay, so you went with the pref conversion. Yeah, just to, let's just assume the prefs convert, uh, and obviously you'd have to take a little bit for dividends and out. But forget that. Let's just assume the yeah. prefs convert. What's the company's EV at six dollars per share right now? Okay, so five hundred million in cash, one point two billion in term loans, so seven hundred million net debt, um, term loan minus cash. Um, you have the Honeywell pref, we'll just call it six hundred million, so that gets you to one point three billion, and then you have six times three hundred thirteen, which is uh, going to be something like one point eight, one point nine. Something in that vicinity, I think. 1.9, let's call it. 
So you had 700 plus 600 is 1.3 plus 1.9. So 3.2 billion is about yeah. the enterprise value we're looking at today versus we think the target EBITDA, and though I think there's reasons to think they will exceed it, but target EBITDA is six. So we're, we're talking 600 million. So we're talking, if I'm doing my math right, a, a little bit over five times EBITDA right now. Is that about yeah. what, what you're looking at? Great. And on numbers that I think could be higher, but yeah, 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 good. Because I'm just looking and you, oh, we should have mentioned, I, I believe GTX is a cheap stock.com. Again, we're taping this yeah, yeah. Uh, Friday, May 14th. This will post Monday, May 17th. I think you're going to launch GTX is, is a cheap stock.com. We'll launch live so people can go there to see some more of your thoughts on GTX. Um, yeah. But if I'm just, you sent me some of your numbers ahead of time and like, I'm kind of looking docket 1000 was the company's last projections, I believe. And they said they thought they would do that 600 in EBITDA number in 2022. I think you think they, they could exceed 750 million in EBITDA by 2022. Yeah. And how are you getting to that number? Um, so there's the very simple, I mean, like, so they did about a billion in sales the last two quarters. So if you ask to look at that docket, I'm sure it says, I think it probably says in 2022, they're going to do like 3.4. That might be right. I, I, I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure if you have it next to you, what they actually projected the sales at. Uh, you know what? I'll, you keep talking and I will find, here it is. Oh, I got it. Yeah. So total revenue, 3.8 projection for 2022. Okay. So they probably had 3.8 and something like 15-ish EBITDA margin, probably how they're back solving into 600 million. That is exactly um, it. Yep. 15 to 16, somewhere there. They used to do like 20% plus EBITDA margin. So we're going to, uh, I'll come at it with like more info and then we'll boil it down after. But um, they used to do like a 20 plus EBITDA margin. And so to sort of, the number one issue they've had, right, is that like we had COVID and everything imploded, right? Like they did, to put that 15 in perspective, in a down 50 auto quarter, they did like a 14 something EBITDA margin. Yep. They had like down 50 sales and we had a 14. But I don't really think it's a, a screaming bullish thing to say we're going to gain 200 bips of margin as we double our sales, right? Um, I think most people would say you're probably going to gain more than 200 bips of margin when you double your sales instantly. Um, not instantly, I guess 12 months later. Uh, the company used to operate at a higher margin than that. Um, if you actually go, it'll be my, I think it's my slide. But like if you go to the Deutsche Bank auto conference um, in like July 2020, June or July, uh, the chief technology officer of the company was asked about margins and they basically said like, well, like if auto, you know, like we think we can get back to like a 17 margin if like auto is like still sluggish, but kind of at these levels because we're going above market. Auto's recovered much sharper than that. And they've actually outgrown the outgrowth that they thought they were going to get. They said they're going to grow four or 500 bips above market. They just grew a thousand in Q4 and 1,500, 15% above market in Q1. So they're actually coming in much higher than their actual numbers when they pre-filing said that they would be doing something like a 17 margin. Um, and so the basic math is, look, their sales are coming in much higher. They used to do a much better EBITDA margin. Um, the number one, some of the headwinds to their margin that had been showing up beyond the number one issue being the crash, right? But they were losing margin on like sort of like diesel had like been falling as a percent of their mix and it's a higher margin than what's replacing it. Um, but that's actually plateaued, it looks like. Um, and commercial vehicles are actually coming back. We mostly have class eight orders are and all that kind of stuff, right? And that's actually higher margin than the rest of the mix. So they basically have a lot, a number of mixed benefits coming, not to mention more important than that, in my opinion. They just have so much revenue growth right now. They're cap, you know, they have a very inefficient model. And so, like to the downside, it's a bit painful because there's not so much to cut. But on to the upside, there's not that much to add either. Um, and so the basic gist is like they said they wouldn't do more than four billion in sales until 2023. 
we're already running at a billion dollar per quarter run rate and we're growing you know 1500 bips above the auto market which itself is recovering and growing something like 10 to 15% you're talking about what exactly it's going to come in at but like there's just a lot of growth to run through that and so you sort of just like oh they're likely to leverage the cap their structure a bit more and then there's a lot of growth and so you just get higher numbers like, just, uh, let me just, uh, just, Ooh. Let me push back on one thing there. And uh, I- I'm sure everybody who's listening loves to hear model critique uh, without seeing a model or anything. But it, yeah. I think terrible, terrible. Sorry. Your, your EBITDA number is higher than uh, than their projections for two reasons. And number one, they're, they think they're going to do about 15 or 16% EBITDA margin and you think they can get back to 20%. And I-, I think that argument makes all the sense in the world. But number two, you mentioned at the end, Hey, they don't have themselves approaching four billion in sales for another couple of years, and you actually have them getting to five billion in sales in the by I think two thousand twenty three, and they, they don't have anything like that, right? So uh, they were projecting, and I'm just reading from the docket. They projected two thousand twenty two sales of three point eight billion. Two thousand nineteen pre COVID, they did three point two billion. I think you think they could be four point three billion by two thousand twenty two, and approaching five billion by two thousand twenty three. So. Could you just talk that sales delta is a big difference. So can you just talk a little bit more about why your sales numbers are so so much further ahead of their projections? So, uh, sure. The first thing I want to is uh, I won't even have two points. They're currently growing, which is way in advance of their actual projections. Like it's just it's it's what they are growing. Like they are currently growing well in excess of what they said. I forget what the I want to say they said they would do like seven hundred. 800 something in like Q1 sales or something like that. I mean, we came in like 25% above our projections three weeks after making them. Like it's not close to being accurate to what actually the business is running at. Um, and it's sort of like, it's hard to see. They have a lot. So bring it back to kind of like the, the visibility of the company. They know what they're in. They know once they're on the product, they're in the market. They're not, they shouldn't be like shocked to find out that no one's going to rotate out them as a thing. It's not like, it's even like more competitive than like, like you could lose shelf space selling a consumer staple, right? You can't actually lose shelf space in this business model in comparison. And so they're already at a billion dollar run rate. They are growing. There's a bit of seasonality to the business, which is basically related to like um, people take slowdowns in the fourth quarter to sort of like repair whatever kind of stuff. And it's the holiday season. So there's a little bit of seasonality, but not tremendous. You can go look at what it's been historically, but we're already at a billion dollar run rate. I think auto is going to continue to recover. I mean, Auto sales, we had the largest post-World War II recession, like Peter Trough decline in auto. Um, so we're bouncing off that. I don't think there's any secular change in the auto industry um, that's going to drive overall car units per capita on a global basis lower. Um, so we're just going to rebound off that. And so auto is growing 12% right now with very clear production shortages related to Suez, ship prices, all that kind of stuff. And so, look, they're at a billion dollars. The background market is going to grow. And plus percent probably for at least two, three years. And then they're growing 15% above that market. I think if anything, it's hard to see. I mean, certainly can see them slowing um, from that, you know, torrid pace, but like it's hard to see how if we're already at that rate. We're not already, we're not going to hit much higher numbers, even modestly performing relative to what we're currently at. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely on, on one hand, I, I agree with everything you made. On the other hand, like the coming in, the thing the, my two things. We said this is a better business because they have visibility. And then my my pushback on the this being super undervalued is, hey, everyone, this just got massively shopped and nobody paid higher. And like, it, again, it just comes back to management put out a projection. Uh, this thing just got shopped and go higher. 
And then on the other hand, we're saying, oh, you know, explosive growth that makes this thing dramatically undervalued and people had access to that. I guess that's on one side. On the other side, like, look, management had the deal wrapped up and uh, they probably wanted to get their options struck at a pretty low level. So it, it probably does make sense for them to sandbag near term projections once they were sure that the the deal was going to get done. They kind of had the financing wrapped up because projecting 500 versus 600 million in EBITDA doesn't make much different on the debt side once you've got that baked up, but it does make a lot of a difference for where your options get struck if you're trying to get rich. Yeah, there's definitely, they were certainly not incentivized to gun projections until now. And I will say now, I think that you're going to see them materially increase their estimates. They had a Q1 sort of earnings-ish fall, um, but they didn't really provide any updated guidance, but they were clearly like, they're a little bit like, we're coming in a lot ahead of plan, right? Like drag your self, you know, model to the right, just drag the cell and, you know, you know what it spits out in a year or two. Um, and so I think, I think it's a material catalyst, but I think it's also one of the more obvious sort of like beat and raise setups to come in 30% above guidance and then like, go like, we're going to beat it again. Like, you know. Uh, so look, I, I think both you and I think, this thing is going to be a cash flow machine in the near term. And the near, near term, they've got to, you know, that you probably do a refi of the bankruptcy exit. You probably do the refi of the Honeywell. You probably need to get the convertible press to convert into common everything. But in a year or two, this company is going to have to start having serious conversations about what do we do on the capital allocation front, right? Because we're throwing off a lot of cash flow. I, I want to come back to the business's long-term outlook in a second, but they're throwing off a lot of cash flow. What do you think with Center Bridge Oak Tree at, at the helm, what do you think capital allocation is going to look like? Is this going to be return of capital? Or are we going to be talking about bolts on acquisitions? Something that I'm not thinking of right now. I think I think it's that. Um, I think it's exactly that. We're going to do some sort of version, and it's it's a little tricky because you have to figure out once the press are listed and what kind of how can can we actually buy them back? Because you can't really buy that many shares. So there's a where are we going to if we're going to do a buyback? How are we going to execute it? Like who are we going to buy it from? Um, so there's a little bit of that. There's also dividend, like a straight up obvious return of cash. Um, and then the more interesting part of that, not necessarily more interesting at a four, five times free cash flow when we're talking about like dividending it, right? That's a pretty juicy yield. Um, but the um, the interesting part will be like the MA angle. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, Borg Warner basically is like, we're going to go buy high priced. Uh, battery electric stuff. Um, I think you might see these guys, which I think is a more interesting story is like, there's maybe some interesting, you know, legacy, quote unquote, internal combustion engine businesses that they could actually do some like M&A in. they have this nice tax rate. Um, and we've been, people had said that that's sort of something KPS was interested in actually when they were bidding for the company is they could use it as a roll-up story. And so, yeah, I think you're going to see them come out. I don't think it'll take two years. Um, they're going to come out with some sort of like, you know, cash return plus maybe inorganic story. And then the other thing is like, if they're not going to be playing a role in buying things, you know, I really don't think this company was fairly shopped um, because I think people didn't have an interest in making their return on 5% of their the fund. They want you know 5% of the company, they want to own 50 and then have a return. Um, and so, you know, I think it's actually a pretty interesting MA target straight up. Like if you want to do a roll up of these legacy businesses that are trading at like higher yields, Garrett is probably it's high margin, it's low corporate overhead. It's a very nice business to throw into a roll-up story if you're going to see. And I think you are going to see um, 
many of the German auto or European, let's say, auto suppliers are talking about spinning out their legacy internal combustion businesses because the world's going battery electric. And so, like, I think with that kind of backdrop, certainly someone is going, some private equity fund somewhere is going to take a shot at rolling up a lot of these legacy businesses. It's so funny to refer to something as legacy when it's ninety-seven percent of the market. Um, but the yeah, I just think. I think you're going to see sane, reasonable capital allocation from the Center Bridge Oak Tree uh, Group, and as Tess is also on the board. Um, I think you're going to see um, it laid out some point before the end of the year. I don't think it would, you know, I think that everyone's sort of getting into their roles, but like, I don't think it'll take all that much time because I don't think it's really tremendously complicated to think about. We have a lot of cash flow. This business will shrink at some point. What are we going to do with the cash and like lay out a plan? You know, I think you and I are both agreed. I I would be a little bit surprised that this this was still a standalone public company in the next three to five years. I I think this is set up low multiple, good visibility, good cash, good solid cash flow. This is the type of business private equity was meant to own. Maybe do some roll ups, take advantage of those relationships and stuff. And you know, Centerbridge and Honeywell, they're going to be looking at after they convert all their prefs and stuff. They they'll own. I think it's about fifty percent of the stock after they convert their prefs and stuff. Uh, it, you can get out of that two way. You can do a big secondary, which there's value leakage, and a lot of people do that. But I, I think the natural way is sell the whole thing to a private equity company that keeps this thing properly levered, which is probably higher than the capital market, the public market likes, and just keep taking cash out of this. Keep taking cash out. Uh, let's talk uh, the outlook because you did mention <laughs> it's funny that 97% of the business, 97% of the world's card are still ice. I think it's even higher than that, but that's the kind of legacy business. At some point, you know, um, electric vehicles don't need turbochargers. Uh, hybrids, I think most of them have it, though I did hear from some due diligence that a lot of the most popular hybrids do not have a turbocharger in them. But at some point, this becomes a melting ice cube. I do think one of your divergent opinions is that it's a lot longer than the market thinks. But how do you look at that melting ice cube risk for the turbochargers where an electric vehicle does not need that? So I think, you know, we're very geared in this very new economy growth kind of thing to think about. Um, uh you know, how does disruption affect all these industries and there's so many examples. But like the, the point I keep trying to make is like, I think people are a little bit used to seeing software disintermediation where you push your button, you distribute your product globally at a zero incremental cost and like, yeah, and, and we're funded by VC so we don't have to make money for 10 years and they just destroy existing businesses. And like, this is not software. This is a actual fundamental rethinking of like, I want to say global auto sales are like a $2 trillion industry. And then if you add in parts and repair and highways and all those other, there's a huge, huge thing. And you're like, there's a lot of physical infrastructure. And so the one of the points I, to simplify it, I, I like to point out that like uh, to make the current generations of batteries, right? They require a bunch of cobalt, much more cobalt than previously anything else needed. And so this runs into a sticky issue that 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo, the DRC. Um, the DRC is in recent con, uh, and to increase to 30% battery electric penetration, which is sort of like the bulls on battery electric are like above that even, but I think most in industry people are like, that's a good solid, like it's a tremendous growth to go from 2% to 30% of a giant global market, a $2 industry, um, in like 10 years, that's a huge growth rate. It's not like at all mild. Um, but to see that you have to have a 4X increase in actually cobalt um, supplies. And so you're sort of like, this is a country that is very much a frontier market. Um, 
It has fought multiple civil wars. Parts of the country are under guerrilla control. 15 to 30% of their mining is, they call it artisanal and small scale, which is a polite way of saying we use child labor, um, which, as I would say, is in addition to being wildly unethical, um, is also not really rapidly scalable. Um, and so you're like, well, where is the where is this product going to come from? And they're like, well, price, and you know, there's a way and going wrong, but it's not, you cannot go from 2% battery electric, let's say last year globally, to 8% this year. You just couldn't do it. You like couldn't actually make the things. It's not the same thing as some of the other, it is not Netflix taking out Blockbuster. It is a much, I fully believe will happen. It is just, it's going to take a while. Um, yeah, no, look. The re- as you're saying, the reason software ate the world was because the marginal cost of software was zero. So as long as everyone had a phone, they could just open up software and disintermediate Blockbuster with Netflix. But, you know, in the real world, it, not that that's in the real world, but, you know, when you're dealing with physical products, as you say, whole supply chains need to get switched over and everything. And it reminds me of like, this is such a loose analogy, but like, you know, I, I love cable companies and, um, you know, everyone, oh, fixed wireless. Like, yeah, I guess fixed wireless is a risk, but right now your average mobile subscriber takes seven seven gigs of data a month and your average broadband subscriber does 700 gigs or something. So yeah. if you're going to switch all of that uh, kind of hardline broadband onto, you're going to blow up the entire wireless system if you did even 4% of that tomorrow. So, and it's, again, looser because we're not, Verizon ain't exactly employing child labor, but uh, it's looser, but it's something similar, right? Like there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built up before you can even think about making that switch. And that takes years and years and years. Yeah. It's just, it's not, I think it's going to happen. It's just not, it does not scale the same way. Another one I just throw out, just is like, yeah, some statistic that like in Europe, I think it's like something like 70% of households are a single car household or something. Um, I'm a little stale on these numbers, but it's in the ballpark of that. And so like something like range anxiety, when you have one car is a, is a very real, when you have two cars, it's like, oh, well, you know, if we take a weekend trip, we'll take the other car and we'll put the kids and the dog in the back. Right. Versus like, we have one car. So if we actually occasionally drive to grandma's house, this is a much, this is a tougher bill. Um, and then also on top of it, like a tremendous amount of Europeans actually don't have a garage or something like 50 plus percent actually park on the street. So you actually have to like redo all the streets, which you can do in 10 years. Like we can put charging stations all along, you know, Broadway and Fifth Avenue. We can redo it, right? But it's not, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it takes a while. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, perfect. Well, hey, I, I want to be cognizant of time because this has been a lot of fun and we've actually gone over an hour. But it, are there any points, any points you wish we had hit harder? Any points that we didn't make that you wanted to get around to? Any kind of last thoughts here? No, I think like, you know, the only we the only thing I would say is like we haven't talked about like the timing around like the pref list thing and like what I kind of think are like that I think is a decently interesting catalyst if you're about buying like the equity around like when it actually gets listed, I think you would actually see like this used to be covered by five different brokers. Um, you know, all of whom have relationships with many of the parties involved in all of this. So I think you can actually see a number of people listing it. And once it's listed, I think you might see some sell-side coverage pick up. And a lot of people are going to be staring at their old model when they're like, oh, it's complicated. Don't touch it. And staring at it. It's a lot simpler now. Um, So I think there's a nice earnings beat, relisting, resell side pickup coverage story that is is pretty nice and catalyst rich in the next couple months. That's perfect. That's perfect. Well, hey. uh, The the website. Yeah. 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 And then one final thing is like, yeah. So um, I'm throwing up a website, gtxisacheapstock.com. Chris, you got to stop beating me to it. I was going to wrap up by telling people gtx is a cheap stock.com. 
We're talking on Friday. It's not up, but Chris has promised me it will be up on Monday. The link will be in the show notes for that. So he's not going to let me down on getting the site up. Everybody should go check that out. Um, you know, I, I think GTX is interesting. I'll just remind everyone, post reorg equity, we both have positions. So please, nothing is investment advice. Please be careful. But Chris, this has been a lot of fun. You run a, you run a concentrated portfolio. So there aren't a lot of new stocks coming in and out of your portfolio that we can talk to. But the next time you have an idea, we're going to, you'll have to gin up a new website and we'll have to have you back on because this has been awesome. And uh, I've really enjoyed this. Really enjoyed swapping notes with you over the years and uh, looking forward to keeping it going. Sounds good. Really appreciate it. Thanks.